Uh, so if um, you have been tracking with us last week, we got to kind of see the first couple judges in the book of Judges um, and looked specifically at Othniel and, and Ehud and King Eglon and all the strangeness and fun of that story. And look specifically though at some of the idolatry, some of the theme of idolatry that has been coming up in the book. Some of the themes around kind of Israel continually giving themselves to things other than God. And that ultimately just oppressing and leading to brokenness. And then ultimately God showing up and delivering them. What we're going to see today is we're going to see that cycle start all over again. And remember, as we've gone through this series, it's kind of like a broken record where we have this uh, crazy repeated cycle of, and then Israel did this again. So watch this in chapter four of Judges, verse one through three, we see the cycle start again. And it says, and the people of Israel again, that's the key word, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then, because of that, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and underline this, for help. They cried out to the Lord for help because he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, first, first thing we want to see, this cycle starts again. We see this cycle all throughout Judges of complacency, then oppression, then deliverance. But this time, if you notice, it's very subtle, but if you notice, God doesn't raise up a deliverer. In the first couple cycles, God is the one who raises up specific figures, specific leaders, specific deliverers to actually free them from the consequences of their sin. Throughout this passage, we're going to see three figures, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, but they step into the gap, not because God raises them up, but because they see a need. And that helps us in this story to see that the protagonist the, the main character of this passage isn't actually Deborah, Barak, or Jael, but it's God himself. God doesn't raise up a deliverer because in this cycle, he is the deliverer. And I told you to underline again, and this is the thing as we go through the whole book of Judges. Honestly, you get to the point where you just start rolling your eyes a bit every time you see this. When a new chapter or a new cycle starts, you're like, and again. And you just kind of roll your eyes and go, sheesh, Israel, what is your deal? But remember, Instead of having that reaction, we have to realize that Judges is holding up a mirror to you and I. It's holding up a mirror to us on our own complacency, on our own cycle. Kind of those things, those little pet sins, those things that we don't seem to be able to get rid of or cut out of our life. Our own lack of discipline, our own lack of obedience and trust and confidence in the Lord. It holds up a mirror to us. Right? But even more than that, it holds up a reflection of God's relentless pursuit of Israel, even in their complacency. It shows us something about the nature and character of God. It shows us something not just about his grace, which is God giving us what we don't deserve, but even more importantly, it shows us his mercy, which is God withholding what we do deserve. And we see God's hand doing that all throughout Judges. So they do cry out to the Lord. That, that's good. So again, they do this, but they do cry out to the Lord. But notice the reason that's given. This is really important. Notice the why they cry out. Because Sisera had 900 chariots, right? So we've, we've already seen the chariot thing come up, where it's just like, oh no, it's the boogeyman, right? It's the chariots. God, 
God's like, no, no, but I've already dealt with chariots. Like, I, you've seen what I can do to chariots. And they're like, no, but he has 900, right? So you see the motive is that they're still looking at the wrong thing. They're still actually crying out for help from God to relieve them of the consequences instead of truly looking and crying out to God because they desire him. And it's a very different motive. And if you remember in the previous cycles, they cry out to the Lord as well and God raises up a deliverer. We're not told why they cry out. We're not given a why. But here they cry out for help. They cry out for a relief from the consequences of their own sin and disobedience. They're not crying out for the forgiveness of those sins. They're crying out for a relief of the consequences of their sin. And the point here, church, we have to see this. To ask God for comfort without confession isn't true repentance. That's not true repentance. And it took 20 years. Did you see that? 20 years of like, now we can do this. Like we can pull this off. It took them 20 years before they're like, fine, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll finally turn back to the Lord, but they don't actually. It's not actually a genuine turning back. So don't be surprised when we see future cycles pop up in Judges because it's not actually a genuine form of repentance. Really, it's not confession at all. It's just a, God, come, save me, rescue me, bless me, relieve me of these consequences. It's still using God as a means to get to the true end, which is whatever security in the land, whatever prosperity they think they want, whatever comfort they think they deserve. So it's very subtle, but it's there. We have to see that because there is a difference between true repentance and false repentance. Repentance is more than saying sorry. Repentance is more than saying sorry to avoid consequences for silly things that we've done. Sorry, God, now bless me. Sorry, God, now deliver me. Sorry, God, now heal me. Now give me that job. Give me that promotion. Now give me that spouse. Help me out and give me that money. God still ends up being the means that we try to use and manipulate to get to the true end that our heart desires. Whatever definition of comfort and security and, and satisfaction we think will actually give us life. So we see the idols in this text are, are deep. They're kind of under the surface of their heart, but it's starting to actually change their posture towards God and not for the better. True repentance, true repentance isn't something we do to get something from God. True repentance is what we do when we're tired of living apart from God. And you can't mistake it for false repentance. Like, like it's real. There's, a, there's a, a, a straight turning around. That's what repentance means. There's a, a serious 180. It's I'm going this way and I'm gonna radically now go this way. Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And God throughout Judges is just lavishing Israel with his kindness because he's pleading for them to come back to him, pleading for true repentance, to turn away from the objects that they've been trusting, to turn away from their definition of success and freedom and satisfaction so that they would come back to him. That's what's happening. That's the, the, the setting, the backdrop of what we're about to see here. And here we meet Deborah and Barak. Watch verse four through seven. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, strong name, was judging Israel at that time. So she was sitting as judge. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel would come to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, 
from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, this is Deborah saying to Barak, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you. Okay, so she's speaking on behalf of God like a prophet does. Now go, get up, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw, this is the Lord speaking, I will draw out Sisera, remember the guy with the chariots, the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river, Kishon, with his chariots, he'll bring those, and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Okay, pause there. So we see something happening here. We see something very different about Deborah sitting as judge um, because she wasn't, del- she wasn't raised up as a deliverer by God. She stepped up, right? So she wasn't raised up, she stepped up. And we see also she's the only judge throughout the book that is also not a military leader, okay? She's not actually the deliverer. And so sometimes with this text, we, we make either Deborah the hero or Barak the hero, or we'll see in a second, Jael the hero. But really there is only one hero. In this, in this passage. There's only one hero from the pages of Genesis to Revelation. And this text does such a good job showing us that they are important and they're important figures and characters that, that really do embody wisdom and discernment and leadership, but only because they're faithful, only because they trust in the Lord. So we see Deborah right here as a prophetess speaking on behalf of God. Now there, there's precedent for that. There's other women who serve as prophets in the Old Testament and in the New. Uh, we see Miriam, who's Moses' sister. In 2 Kings, we see someone called Huldah. In Luke 2, we see Anna. And Philip's daughters are mentioned to be prophetesses in Acts 21 as well. And what's really interesting here is the author of this text in Judges uses seven feminine terms in a row, okay, to really highlight the strength, the vision, and the exceptional leadership of Deborah, okay? So that's really highlighted in this text. And a little bit later in chapter five, we see that Deborah says of herself, I rose up. This is very interesting. God didn't raise her up. I rose up like a mother to Israel, okay? So here's, here's the thing. Deborah's actually sitting. She's looking at wayward Israel as her children, as her child. And then she goes and she cares for them and she gives them wisdom and she speaks the word of God to them. Ladies, the most attractive thing about you is when you are full of the word of God. And this culture will tell you it's not. It's all sorts of other things. It's about you being progressive. It's about you being uh, looking like this and, and having this kind of platform and having this kind of followership and you being able to do that with your body. And right here scripturally, it's amazing to see that Deborah is elevated because she is full of the word of God. She is following after the will of God because she's full of the word of God. And then she goes and steps into this role of leadership. And this actually brings us back to some of the maternal depictions of God throughout scripture. In Hosea, God describes himself as a lioness hunting or a bear with, with her, his bear cubs, right? Isaiah 66, 13, I will comfort you as a mother comforts her child. We see all of this character wrapped up in Deborah. And what's very interesting about Judges, and here's where I think the point is for us, is that there's actually more focus on female figures than any other Old Testament book. There's more women that are highlighted in the book of Judges than any other Old Testament book. Why? Why? Well, it's to stress a major theme that just kind of sits, and it sits under the surface of Judges, but it's very, very clear when you see it, when you know it's there, you're going to see it. Okay, the major theme throughout Judges is that there is still residue 
and an ongoing effect of the curse of the garden. That what happened in the garden is still following humanity. There's a residual brokenness that we saw started in the garden that is still at work in the people, still at work of the people of Israel. And if you remember back in the garden, it broke when sin entered the picture and autonomy and independence from God and trusting other things than God came into the picture. It broke the vertical relationship between God and humanity. And it also broke the horizontal relationship between women and men, but then also humanity and creation, the land. So we see all of this wrapped up in the book of Judges. And the twofold curse that we saw in, in Genesis is that Adam's relationship to the land is now broken. There's a curse there. Judges shows the failure of the people to restore proper care for the land. That's why the land's such a big deal. They've actually punted on their responsibility to steward, to be fruitful and multiply, to take care of as priests over creation, to take care of it as co-rulers, co-caretakers of creation. That's broken. And secondly, Eve's relationship with Adam and vice versa. Judges shows a failure to have a restored, healthy, life-giving relationship between women and men. And both of these themes are captured through the repeated failure of Israel throughout Judges where we see idolatry, a breaking of the vertical relationship, and we see intermarriage, romantic compromise, and the objectification of women to show us the brokenness that happens horizontally. And as Judges unfolds, it's very fascinating. Women are valued less and less as the book goes on. If you remember the first woman that's mentioned in the book, it's Aksa, who is Othniel's wife. And remember who Othniel was. Othniel is this very short description of the model of godly leadership. Godly, the godly judge of the book of Judges, right? So he's there. And this first woman mentioned, Aksa, she's with him, right? So there's, there's wisdom, there's unity, there's, there's, co, there's a, a cooperation between these two, this man and this woman, and it's good. And they're set up as the benchmark for right relationship between men and women. And then it just goes downhill from there. It goes downhill from there. The rest of the book, and I'll point it out as we go, but the rest of the book shows objectification. It shows sexual brokenness. It shows a lack of intimacy. It shows this authoritarian thing crop up and an ignorance of what God actually called men and women to be in cooperation to actually represent who God is and his nature and character and heart and it breaks down, and it continues to cycle and just spiral downward. And it's here, Deborah, that calls Barak. And he says, she says to Barak, has not the Lord commanded you? That's Deborah for, what are you doing? Right? Like, so, like I thought, like, did, you know God already said this. So now go, and I will give them into your hands. Like, like God already told you that, that he's going to do that, so why are you not doing it? What's really interesting about this command, this reminder that we see in Deborah's mouth, in her words, is that she's not saying that God is gonna remove the obstacle, right? Notice the chariots are still there. They're like, oh, but he has chariots. And the Lord's like, oh yeah, he's gonna come with his chariots, right? He doesn't remove the obstacle. He doesn't remove what Barak and Israel are clearly afraid of, but he does promise victory. That's very, very important because often if we're honest, 
We're only looking for a way out. We're not actually looking for a way. And God here is not offering them a way out, but he is offering them a way. And that is so that he can be victorious. And what we see here, it's very, very important, is that the key to Israel's success here in this particular battle and throughout the rest of Judges, it wasn't physical. The key to their success isn't military. The key to their success isn't political. The key to their success isn't financial. The key to their success is spiritual. It's obedience. It's trusting God, right? And this reminds me of Psalm 56, where the psalmist just says, when I'm afraid. Okay, so again, in our Christian thing here that we've just made, like we say stuff like fear is a liar. Like it's just like, oh, fear is a liar. Well, but sometimes fear tells us the truth. Like sometimes fear like points out something that we should pay attention to so then we can actually see that God is bigger, better, greater, stronger than the thing that we're afraid of, right? So we gotta be careful. When I'm afraid, Psalm, Psalm 56, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I love that. Like, like what, so what can chariots do to us? Like, like what can these things do to us if it's in God that we trust? Like truly, really, it's when I'm afraid that I actually go and I, I hitch my life to him, to his strength, to his victory, to him being my defender, to him being the conqueror, the warrior God who is above all and over all. And honestly, church, I really do. When I, when I think about this kind of stuff and I reflect on this, we need a way more biblical definition of success. Let me, let me ask, what would you need to happen? And be honest with yourself. What would you need to happen in your life right now for you to consider yourself successful? When you look back, think about coming to the end of your life, looking back, what would, you, what would you really, in your heart, what would you look at and be like, oh yeah, that, that, I was a success. Because right away, honestly, we see the creep. We see the creep of, of idolatry. We see the creep of trusting in everything but God. It's gotta be that kind of house and that career, that financial you know, security, that platform, that recognition, that car, that spouse, those kids. Like we have so many things that would fight to say this is what makes you successful. But in this text and all throughout scripture, we see that God's definition of success is not prosperity. It's not security. It's not comfort. It's not personal accolades. It's not recognition. It's not living the Canadian dream and getting that job or that house or that car or those kids or settling down. It's obedience. God's definition of success is obedience. It's a resolute trust in him over and above everything else. Listen, like some of us still think we need more time or need more preparation or need more education or need more money. And that might be true in some circumstances, but I think most of us really just need more faith, more trust in who God is, more obedience to who he has revealed himself to be. We need to stop looking at all of the things here horizontally. Stop looking at all the chariots and start looking to God who has already commanded us to go, who has already promised to deliver things into our hands according to his perfect decided will. If only we would go, if only we would. And that's the crazy thing we see about faith. It's, it's taking the first step, knowing that the rest of the steps might be unknown to us, but they're already determined by the Lord. And that's what we see here. 
And watch Barak's answer to this. Deborah calls him on that strong as the prophetess, full of the word of God. And watch Barak's answer in verse eight through nine, watch. And so Barak said to her, if you'll come with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. And she said, okay, I'll go. I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, though, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Okay, now this is very interesting because it creates tension now in the passage. It creates tension of like, who is that woman gonna be? Is it Deborah? Is Deborah gonna rush in with a shield and sword now and go and take down these chariots? What's happening here? But notice in Barak's answer, Deborah just reminded him of what God has already said, that if you go, I'm already there and I'm gonna take care of things. And he turns to Deborah and says, uh, I'll go if you come with me. What does that remind you of? Remember back in chapter one, when God tells Judah, right? The, tri the tribe of Judah, go into the land and get rid of the rest of the Canaanites so that we can actually see the covenant fulfilled. And what does he do? He turns to Simeon and he's like, Simeon, you wanna come with me, right? Right away, we see a lack of trust in what God has already said. So then we kind of like manufacture our own way. It's like, well, yeah, that, I'll just like pack it with this. I'll make it more secure because my plan, way better, right? Barack's answer is I won't go unless. And that's not a good answer. It's not a good answer at all. The irony here in the text, it's amazing, is that Barack's name means lightning. He is, nothing, he is everything but lightning fast on his, on his decision to follow what God has already commanded. And, and it's crazy in the, the Canaanite kind of uh, theology, Baal, the main God, Baal, that we talked about last week, he's actually pictured as riding on a storm cloud holding thunder and lightning. And so there's a huge play on words poetically here of like, how are you gonna go and conquer the God of lightning? You, whose name is lightning, if you're hesitating. Barak is everything but lightning fast on this. Everything is already prepared. Everything is already ready for him to walk into. And he's sitting hesitating. He's sitting kind of pump faking in the paint. That's a basketball reference. Okay, sitting in the paint, so close to the net, ready to just put the ball in and he's just pump faking continuously. No defenders around him, right? God's plan is already set. Deborah has already called him to it and he hesitates, which poses a question for us. How often do we say, I won't unless, I won't unless you, or I, I won't unless I have this. I won't until God, you do this. So often in our Christian walk, when we try to understand what faith looks like, we end up waiting on God, waiting for a word from the Lord or waiting on a revelation about the Lord or waiting for God to reveal his will to me while ignoring everything he's already said. That's really important. You will not live out the will of God while ignoring the word of God. The will of God for your life, ready? Here it is. The will of God for your life, I'll tell you what it is, is that you obey God's word. That's God's will for your life. And we will not live in the will of God if we do not intimately know and passionately obey the word of God. And what's crazy about that, it's just like, well, but the word of God is the will of God revealed. That's what it is. And Deborah knows this. And Barak has forgotten this. And I don't have time, but we see a beautiful complementarian thing happening here in the text with strong female leadership and integrity and, and weaker 
uh, male leadership and integrity. But in Hebrews, it's actually not Deborah who's talked about for her faith. It is Barak. So we don't want to get on Barak's case too much. We do see that he does actually operate in faith here. He is, rec- he, he is recognized later in Hebrews for him being faithful to God calling. It just took a little while to get him there. We also see in this text a beautiful sense of community that we actually need one another. We need each other's gifts. We need the distinctiveness of each other's gifts so that we can walk united into the will of God as a community. But we see Barak hesitating. Where are you hesitating? Where are you procrastinating from something that you know God has already called you to, that God has already commanded of us as the church, of you as a follower of Jesus? See, the things that God has already commanded They don't need to be prayed about. They need to be obeyed. And we see that here. We see a hesitation. And I think often we think that obedience in my life is is about God's will not being made clear enough. We get kind of wrapped up in this individualistic thing as if God owes us kind of private, personal words and revelation. But obedience to God is not about his will being clear enough to us. It's about trusting him even when things aren't clear. And we're misled to believe, church, I think, that if only God would speak more clearly to me, if only God would tell me his plan, if only God would give me a revelation, then I would obey. It's not true. It's not true at all. If you're not already walking in faithful trust and obedience to God, no extra revelation, no extra display is gonna bring your heart into submission to wanting to obey. It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. Obedience is better than revelation. That's what we need to understand. Trusting and walking and and going and throwing our whole life at God because his will is good and perfect and right and true. That is much better than revelation. We don't need more because God has already revealed himself. We already have what we need. Now we need to go and trust and obey. And also I think here too, like, remember they're afraid, right? Like, I think like they're very afraid. We got to just kind of like enter into the humanness of the text here. God very rarely, if ever, calls you and I to what's easy, safe, comfortable, and offers a guaranteed ROI on what we invest. Very rarely, if ever. But he does always call us to what is good. And today, in a culture that is absolutely given over to security and obsessed with comfort and control and entertainment. It seeps in and then Christians make up Bible verses like God will never give me more than I can handle, which by the way, it's not there. That's taken from a text in 1 Corinthians 10. That's about temptation to sin, not challenges and circumstances because of your discomfort. And honestly, if we ever read our Bible, the last thing we could say reading the Bible is like, oh yeah, godly men and women, they're never given more than they can handle. No, God repeatedly gives us more than we can handle so that we realize that we need him to handle it. That's obedience. So we have to be so careful, like last week, having this idol of comfort and security just kind of slip in and then we use God for the real end that we want, which is just about us. That's not what this is about. Uh, Honestly, I think my favorite display of this in literature outside of the Bible is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy and Susan and Edmund and Peter meet with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They're 
terrific, okay? We're, just, we're going deep, we're going deep this morning. And if you remember, this is the first time they actually start to hear about Aslan. If you know anything about Narnia, Aslan is the embodiment, the allegorical embodiment of Christ, the Christ figure. And Lucy says to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're sitting having tea, it's beautiful, in their dam. And he says, Aslan, is Aslan a man? Is, is he a man? And, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. Aslan is a lion. He's, he's the lion. He's the great lion. And then Susan says, well, is he, is he, is he quite safe? Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the God that we serve. The God who is not tameable. He's not manipulatable by our prayers and our faith and all the things that we wanna muster out of him. He's the untamed, unsafe God who is good. And it's that tension, it's in the midst of that tension, church, that we actually find obedience, that we actually live a life of obedience. That, that if, we, if we want safety and comfort, we can go get that, but God will not be a part of that, that because he's not there. That's not what he does. That's not what he calls us to. That's not the kind of men and women that he's forging in a culture that is given over to the idols of security and safety and comfort and satisfaction and autonomy and self-love and self-everything else. God's like, no, no, walk away from that. Come to me where full of mystery and things that aren't safe and danger and risk and costliness, but it's good and it's right. And I've already given it into your hands. I'm already there. And the story continues and shows us how it unravels and Barak does, does respond well in faith and he does go. He's like, okay, I've been reminded, I'm gonna go. And his enemy, Sisera, hears Barak, is ready to go. So they go and meet, the battle's about to go down and it stresses how many times he brings his chariots. <laughs> the chariots are there. And Deborah's like, all right, this is it, go. Go get in there, fight the battle. And we see the battle take, take place. And what we saw in the text as an asset for Sisera becomes a liability real quick. Later in chapter five in Deborah's song of celebration, she mentions that it was actually a huge rainstorm that was sent, which is, which is pl a play on words because Baal is the God of rain, right? This is like a, a apologetic, like, oh, you, your gods, you think your gods are awesome. Watch this. God takes rain, the thing that they think Baal is the God over, and he uses rain to make the soil all muddy so their chariots can't go anywhere. Right? And then Sisera flees without his chariots. And then it tells us that, that Barak chases them down, like runs past their chariots. It's an amazing, amazing imagery. And right here we see that Sisera flees at the end of verse 16, he flees. So you're almost like in the story, there's a tension building where it's like, wow, this battle, what's going on? And then, and then Sisera flees. You're like, oh man, he got off his chariot. And you're like, what's gonna happen next? Well, watch, watch the tension. Verse 17 through 21. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. You're like, oh, okay, who's this? The wife of Heber, the, Ken the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Okay, so there's a treaty between these two people. Jael, non-Israelite. Okay, so she, she, she comes out to meet Sisera and says, turn aside, my Lord, come here. Come inside the tent, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to, um, to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no, 
But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly, I love it, to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from fatigue. So he died. I think that last part was not necessary. It's probably the biggest overstatement of all scripture, right? Tent peg through your temple, then he died. Okay, now what is going on here? Well, it's really, really interesting because the tent, you know, in the ancient context, tents were, were safety, right? They were set up for safety. They were, they were what home was. You'd travel, you'd set up your tent, you'd tear it down, and then you'd travel again. That's, that's what nomadic peoples look like. And it was the job of women. Okay, so moms as, as homemakers, as, as full-time moms, they would set up the tent, they'd take care of it. So it's really interesting because the, the stress on what she used to actually get rid of this guy is, is like her normal household things. So it's just like, if you're a full-time mom, it's just like whatever your household thing is. It's like, yeah, you took that and you did that. Okay, that's what's happening here. Now, there's some amazing play on words in the Hebrew. I can't unpack all of it, but there's some amazing artistic play on words here. The Hebrew for through his temple is barakato, which sounds like what? Barak. It's showing us, it's confirming what Deborah said earlier, which is you're not gonna get glory for this because he hesitated. And not, there's gonna be a woman who rises up to actually defeat the enemy and be, and be victorious. And this play on words is to show and remind us, oh yeah, it was gonna be Barak, but it's not anymore. Confirming that he didn't get credit for this victory. And this is a wild story. It's a crazy story. It's a gruesome story because God uses a non-Israelite who actually violates a political treaty between the Kenites and Jabin, King Jabin, and then lies to Sisera and then kills him. And God uses it to accomplish his purposes. Now here's what's crazy about this. And here's the moral thing that just kind of floats in this text. God, this, this happens, this event happens. Jael steps up and does this. And we don't hear moral commentary from God on this at all. God neither condones her methods and what she does, nor does he violate her personal responsibility in the choice that she makes to do what she does. So what should we think about this? Well, I'll leave that for you to wrestle with because so often this moral kind of thing that just hangs invites us into tension. It invites us into this godness and this humanness. It invites us to incarnate ourselves into some of these tensions in the texts and sit with the nuance and sit with that tension. But here's what Deborah says about Jael in the next chapter. In chapter 524, Deborah calls Jael a most blessed woman. So whereas we might be tempted to think, well, no, but that was, that was wicked. Like that was very violent. I can't believe she did that. You have to understand. We have to understand the long game of this. 20 years, Israel has been oppressed by Sisera and King Jabin and their people. This is just judgment for Sisera and Jabin's awful treatment and oppression of the Israelites, including, and we'll see, we, we see this later, I'll let you read this this week, but in chapter five, the systematic abduction, rape, and trafficking of young women. We see that in chapter five, verse 30. Okay, so Jael is... is, is is actually stepping up and holding a line for, ju for justice. She's actually stepping up and holding a line and delivering judgment that ultimately she's celebrated for because she's a most blessed woman because she now aligns herself. Even though she's not of the God of Israel, she aligns herself with the God of Israel and his righteousness and his judgment and justice. And church, we have to get better at wrestling with this kind of text 
Because all through Judges, we see God get angry. We see God passionately jealous. We see God issuing judgment and actually taking action on things that are unjust and evil and wicked and wrong. And one of the mistakes that we make, one of the mistakes that we make in our Western thing that we've created, this Pleasantville thing that we've created for ourselves is we make judgment the opposite of love. Okay, sit with that. We've made judgment the opposite of love. That's why it's impossible in our cultural moment to disagree with somebody and love them at the same time. Why? Well, because we're judging them. And if we're judging someone, we must hate them. But church, the opposite of love is not judgment. The opposite of love is apathy. God cares enough to be angry. And that should, like, that should be a good thing for you. That God actually cares enough to be angry. God cares enough to punish and judge everything that threatens the objects of his love. And I honestly think too often, so often, we're pitched a squishy caricature of God. A a squishy, just feeble character of Christianity. As if our call is to be nice and mind our P's and Q's and smile at stupidity. Like that, that's the Christian life. It's like, no, that's the opposite. Like, like the Christian life is not that at all. And in reality, some of us are not angry at things that we should be. Like we don't have any righteous anger in us because we have no shape to hold. We have nothing we'll stand on. We have no line we'll draw. We have nothing to, to actually step into to say enough. And Jael does it. Jael does it. And it confronts you. And it confronts me on just living our life and being unfazed and being apathetic about injustice and suffering and evil and wickedness. And honestly, we have been inoculated by this Western Pleasantville where we don't even feel anything anymore. We don't feel God's righteous anger towards suffering and injustice. Why? Well, because we can sit passively and and browse and scroll. If we don't like it, we'll just turn it off. But it doesn't mean it ends doesn't mean globally, if we can just turn it off and change the browser and close the screen, that that ends. And I think God more than ever is pleading with this church to actually look at real injustice and do something about it. And I think that honestly, the challenge of this text is Israel wouldn't do it. Israel wouldn't do it. So a non-Israelite does. Shame on us if we let the world do the work of the church better than the church. And I'm not talking about nonsense. I'm not talking about sitting around bickering about silliness. I'm talking about real justice, like real feelings of God's righteousness towards the brokenness and the oppression and, and, and just the, the terrible things day in and day out that happen in our city, in our country and on our globe. Let's not be inoculated to this. Let's not be inoculated by this. Uh, N.T. Wright, Anglican, Bishop says it best. Listen to this. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, okay, underline, hates anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures, image-bearers. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. 
If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, then he is neither loving nor good nor wise. Praise be to God that we don't worship that God, that that's not the God of the gospel, that that's not the God of history, that that's not the God of scripture. Church, if you don't feel anything, you won't do anything. And praise God that he does feel, that he does judge, that he does get roused by his anger his righteous anger, not fickle like yours, not silly and egotistical like ours, but, but a righteous anger, truly good, truly just. Praise God that he does feel and he, and he does do something. And you and I are not objects of his wrath and judgment anymore, but we're objects of his grace and mercy. And that one day we will stand unqualified, but qualified because of the work that he has done on our behalf. And we will stand before him completely justified, and continually sanctified by his grace and his love and his mercy. So we see this passage come to an end and we see all of that packed in there. And in verse 23, we see the entire message of the whole story underlined for us, watch. So on that day, that day when that battle happened and Jael did that, on that day, God subdued Jabin the king. Did you see that? God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. That underlines the entire message on the entire passage for you and I. It wasn't Deborah. It wasn't Barak. It wasn't Jael. All the other names, all of the other characters have disappeared from the story. They're gone, including Jabin, including Sisera. They're all gone. They're not in the story anymore. Why? Because it's God that subdued the, 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 the wicked powers that were oppressing Israel. And unlike previous cycles where we do see judges and other cycles that we will see, we, we do see judges being the deliverer, being the redeemer, human deliverer, human redeemer. Right here, it's God himself. It's God himself. God, the redeemer. God, the defender. God, the victorious one. God, the conqueror. And the whole story points us forward. The whole story points us forward. Not to the head of a physical enemy being crushed, Notice that. Notice the language here where Jael takes that tent peg. Does it remind you of anything? It hyper hyperlinks us right back to Genesis. Right back to Gen Genesis 3.15 where the promise of God before they are banished from the garden is that the head of the serpent, the head of the real enemy will be crushed in a full display of God's grace, mercy, and justice on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we know that that's fulfilled there, but right here in the story, they're wondering, is it being fulfilled now? Is God finally gonna ride in as our defender and our redeemer? It's a beautiful text, but this is not about the head of a physical enemy at all. It's pointing us forward to the defeat of evil, to the destruction of injustice, to silencing our accuser and ultimately silencing the power of death. Hebrews 2 unpacks this well and says, Jesus through his death destroyed. Okay, so by being destroyed by death, Jesus, the God man, he himself destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, to do what? To deliver. He's the one who delivers. To deliver all of those who through fear of death 
we're subject to slavery. If there's anything we're subject to and enslaved by, it's a fear of death. It's a fear of loss. It's a fear of complete and utter hopelessness in the future. And Jesus shows up to silence the power of death so that nothing can rob us of life for eternity. That is what's being prophesied and pushed into by this text. That's what's being hoped for in this text. And of course, we can recall Paul doing this in Romans 8. This will be up there for you. Where Paul packs this and just brings it all right together for us. 8 verse 31 says, if God is for us, so this text shows us that, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Rhetorical question. Answer, no one and nothing. Since he himself did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Verse 37, 38. No, despite all these things, all the things we go through, all of the chariots that we see, all of the armies, all of the, the things that, that bring us to where we are in our struggle in our Christian walk, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not death, nor life, not angels, nor demons, not our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Some days we need that reminder because then we will walk forward into whatever God has for us, knowing that he is already, he already has it in his hand. But notice here, the key of this passage as Paul pulls this together is that he says, if God is for us, notice it's not about us. So church, you might be in your 20 years right now, still kind of wrestling, playing around, tinkering around with idols, not ready to actually repent and call out and confess and repent for the right reasons. God might be walking you through a valley right now. God might be bringing you through a, a season of deconstruction so that he can reconstruct you and your faith God might be bringing you through a season of, of trial and tough stuff, like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, whatever it is, so that he can work it all out for your good, so that he can shape you and change you and grow you and, and strip you of everything that would get in the way or threaten to steal you from him. That might be your season right now, but it's not about you. It's that he's for us. If God is for us, then none of that can take us from him. That, that he will work it out for good. That's what's so beautiful about this passage. That is what is true about the gospel. But we have to ask, how did Jesus overcome that? What did he do to actually overcome and defeat this evil? What did he do to be victorious, to make us more than conquerors? Well, he didn't do it by dominance. He didn't do it by coercion. He didn't do it by power structures and control, but by love, but by service, but by humility. He did it by laying his life down for his enemies, not defeating them, not showing up and riding in and taking power over them, but actually coming and laying his life down for them in order to rescue them. Jesus defeats evil, not by asserting himself, but by submitting himself. And church, what Christ does for us, Christ promises to do in us a renewed change from the inside out, a renewal of how we see everything, a renewal of how we understand power and, and money and security and, and other people and, and a renewal of creation because he promises nothing less. 
He renews us, you and I, the church, from the inside out. And then what does he do? Well, he commissions us out to go and be fruitful and multiply, to go and actually care for creation the way that he has called us to, to go out and be agents for renewal in a fallen and broken and violent and divided world. That's how we push back evil. That's how we experience the power of being more than conquerors. It's much more and much bigger than your or my circumstances. It is a colossal, cosmic worldwide transformation and a pushing back of darkness as the church moves forward as light. I'll leave you with this. We're running out of time. What else is new, right? Gregory Boyd captures this well. It's not gonna be on the screen. I wanna just invite you to close your eyes or just focus on something that just allow you to really internalize this here. Gregory Boyd summarizes what was actually done by Jesus and how he does this, how he pushes back powers of evil, how he pushes back darkness. Listen to this. When Jesus broke religious taboos by fellowshipping with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners, and when he forsook religious traditions to lovingly heal and feed people on the Sabbath, he was waging war against the powers and exposing the systemic evil that fuels religious legalism and oppression. He was conquering evil with love. When Jesus boldly crossed racial lines, fellowshipping and speaking highly of Samaritans and Gentiles, and when he crossed other social barriers, fellowshipping with and touching lepers, he was resisting and exposing the evils of the powers that fuel racism and social marginalization. He was conquering evil with love. When in the midst of an extremely patriarchal culture, Jesus treated women with dignity and respect. He was battling and exposing the powers that fuel sexism. He was conquering evil with love. And when Jesus expressed mercy to people who knew they deserved judgment and whom the culture stipulated should be judged, he was resisting and exposing the powers that fuel social and religious cruelty and judgmentalism. Everything about Jesus's life must be understood as an act of defiance against the powers precisely because everything about his life was an act of self-sacrificial love. He closes with this, listen. Forsaking the use of power over others for the sake of expressing the power of love towards others. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. I think that is exactly what the church needs to embody today with all of the different issues and all of the moving parts that we're experiencing in culture and society right now, church, if we actually saw ourselves as a radically different, set apart, holy community of self-giving love, we would see nothing less than the transformation and renewal of our neighborhoods and our city. And if we don't have time, we'll close here, but I encourage you, read chapter five this week, maybe, maybe this afternoon, sit and read chapter five, because this is the only time where the author of Judges actually breaks out of story, out of narrative, and it bursts into song. It's amazing. Where Deborah actually, after this victory, after deliverance, celebrates. And she gives us a theological reflection on history. She looks back and shows us the fingerprints of God in hindsight through this amazing song that her and Barak sing together. 
And Deborah and Barak give us a perfect example of how to look back on our life, not historically, just for facts, but to look back and see our life theologically, to intentionally look and see where God has been at work, where God has been calling you and I, what God has already commanded you to do and how he has always provided and how he will continue to. And it says in chapter five, that's on that same day that they celebrated and broke out into song, like a Disney musical, but way better. That is on that day when they experienced that, they celebrated. Why? Well, because we celebrate most what we believe will give us joy. And right here, church, celebration is the only and the right response to deliverance. Followers of Jesus, we should be the most content, at peace, joy-filled, generous, untriggered, non-toxic, humble, celebratory people on the planet. And not because everything is going well, not because everything is safe and cute and predictable and secure, but because all of that is wrapped up in the God that we worship. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, when we look back on history, we see fingerprints of your goodness but I pray that today we would be encouraged and be called to reflect well on where you have been at work in our, our life personally. I pray that just as Deborah and Barak can celebrate the deliverance that you have given, that we as a worshiping community would be able to celebrate the greater deliverance, the victory that we have in the cross, that, that nothing, nothing can take us from your hand because of your love for us. That even death itself, the great equalizer, the great silencer of life cannot take us from the life that we have in you because of your resurrected power, Jesus. Because you are the author of life and death. Because you are the only one that has power over the grave. And it's in you that we trust. So I pray, Spirit, that you would fill us with boldness. I pray that you would use this, use this morning that as we go, as we log off, as we go into a time of reflection and meditation and prayer, that we would celebrate, that we'd worship well, that we'd sing, that we'd pray, that we'd reflect, that we'd think in light of the victory that we have in you. And it's for your namesake, it's for your glory that Lord, we can walk into that in the future because of what you have already delivered us from in the past. So we ask that you would just make that true again in our heart, that it would transform our week, that it would transform everything that we consume and think about and look at and, and the relationships we have and the work that we do, that there wouldn't be a single part of our life untouched by this reality of your victory and your love. So we give ourselves to you and ask that it would make much of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.